Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark chapter 10, part 2. We'll pick up where we left off. Mark is wrapping up the ministry of phase of Jesus' story. Uh, Jesus is slowly moving towards Jerusalem. He's teaching as he goes. He's working with the disciples. Uh, he is along the way being challenged by scribes, Pharisees, even his own disciples. And at each place, Jesus will not only talk about what how to respond to that challenge, but then he'll go demonstrate it. He'll go and do a miracle that makes the point. Uh, so he's been discussing marriage, children, money, all the big life differences that are going to be made for somebody in the kingdom of God. Practical differences. Uh, things that are about how to live life as a believer, how to live a life in a way that God's pleased with how you're living. Uh, the notable story of the beginning of the chapter, and we're really in context to that still, is the story of the rich man. He walks up to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? The answer is, you can't do anything to be saved. Good luck. Uh, but Jesus works with him and he says, well, if you really want to do this on your own, sell everything you own and follow the Lord. And the man's not able to let go of his possessions. So there's, again, nothing he can do to be saved because it's not a works-based kind of thing. And then the disciples kind of look at each other and go, wow, that was pretty harsh. And they have, are, you know, go to Jesus and they're like, wow, you know, like, let's follow up on this. So in verse 28 of chapter 10, Peter began to say to him, notice that he began to say to him. So there's likely a larger discussion here where they're saying, see, we've left all and followed you. And so see is like asking Jesus to notice. So look at us. And in other words, they're, they're, they're asking about their eternal salvation and, and asking questions, something to akin to, well, Jesus, have we done okay? Are we doing all right? Remember, not all of the disciples have given up everything. They've left everything to follow Jesus. But there's no reason to think Peter doesn't still own a house because we know that in Acts they meet in Peter's house. Uh, they have places to pray and places to meet. Uh, there's nothing that says that James and John sold their fishing boat or that their father doesn't still own one. Um, so there's this idea that they're saying we've left all to follow you, but maybe they're asking, like, should we be giving everything away too? It's a tough question. It's also something that where Jesus could see what that particular rich man needed to do and what he had to get past in order to follow Jesus because those possessions were a stumbling block. So Jesus assures his disciples, you know, that was a, a particular instruction for an individual person, but that now he's going to generalize a little bit. He's going to give them more of a principle than a specific instruction like he gave to the rich man. Outside of, uh, outside of giving up what they were following after to follow Jesus, the disciples are looking at this. And, and I'd like to think that this is really like what's left for us to be on good terms to go to heaven. And what do we need to do beyond following Jesus? And Jesus answers and says, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, the last will be first. Obviously, Jesus isn't promising that if you give up time with your mother, that you'll get a hundred mothers in heaven. But he is making a point to say, when you do have to walk away from things for the sake of the gospel, and I think that's an important distinction in verse 29. If you're doing things for the sake of the gospel, God's keeping track of those things. And he recognizes when you have to give something up. He says there is no one at the beginning of 29. There's no one who has done this. That's a generalized statement. Unlike talking to the rich man, this is a universal principle for all believers. He teaches from the rich man and broadens this out. In the idea that sometimes to follow God, we have to give things up and we have to make choices. You know, if, there's a, if, you're, if you've committed to a fellowship of believers to study the word every week and that fellowship needs you there, you're part of the body, then you don't miss those things. You do everything you can do to be there every week because you've made a commitment to be there. So if you've made that commitment, there may be occasions where you actually have sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children that want you to do something else during that time and you have to kind of make a choice. There's lots of situations where this can come up. At the same time, Jesus honors his father and mother. He honors his mother because he asked John to take care of her. But he also tells his mother that he's busy with his, his family just a few chapters ago. Well, they come out and trying to get Jesus to come away from his teaching. And he, and he points out that his family is the, the kingdom of God, these people. So he's making some choices there. He models it for his disciples that the kingdom of God comes first and everything else comes after that. Now, <laughs> God doesn't miss this. Um, he tracks these life choices and he pays attention to it. And that's the point here in, in, in verse 30 is that God's not going to be a debtor to us. And if we have to give things up for him, he's not going to miss that point. So when we, um, when we expect God to be just and we expect God to be good, it's not hard to give up things for God. Because God, we, we recognize God knows that and respects that. God's going to judge and he has the power and authority to do that judging. And he's not going to lose track of what, who's sacrificed what and who's gone through what. In, in verse 30, it picks up even that idea of persecutions. Going through persecution is giving up our, our comfort. And God keeps track of those things. Making a choice to do ministry instead of getting a good night's sleep sometimes or being on the phone with somebody early in the morning when they need to do some Bible study so you disciple people. You're giving up some of that time perhaps with your family and friends. Now people can misuse this verse, saying that there's no obligation to family and there's no obligation to other things. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Again, he took care of his mom too. And he actually um, criticized the Pharisees for making excuses to not take care of their family and their parents. So, what Jesus is saying here is when, when it comes down to the sake of Jesus and the calling of Jesus and the gospel message that needs to get out, some of those sacrifices will happen. And when they do, God's keeping track of those things. Jesus never asked anything of his followers. And I think that needs to be made clear here. Salvation is a free gift from God. And he offers it to everyone. And essentially here, when it says there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, not all believers have to leave things to follow the Lord. So honestly, this is one of those things where the disciples have made some sacrifices to be servants of Jesus and to work with Jesus. Um, and he's saying that, you know, I, I, I hear that you've made those sacrifices and I'm not asking you to, to do what the rich man did. 
And the Lord knows the difference between the two. So when he asks for things from his people, I think it's important to note that most of what he's asking for here is time and essentially to get rid of stumbling blocks. If there's aspects to our faith that are causing us to fall into sin, which was the case with the rich man and his possessions, that sometimes we give those things up. In fact, if it's a stumbling block and it's going to get in the way of following Jesus, not only do we give those things up, we're happy to give those things up because they're getting in the way of a greater joy. So Jesus kind of fleshes this out a little bit. Um, he, he says um, in verse 30, who, who shall not receive in the age to come. I think it's important to note here that Jesus is not just talking about this life. So to give up or sacrifice something for the Lord in this life doesn't always mean the reward is going to be in this life. And Jesus makes puts that condition in there, and either in this life or in the age to come. But the Lord understands that difference. This is called delayed gratification. We give up things in the short term that are getting in the way of following Jesus. And in the long term, in the age to come, we get rewarded for those sorts of things. I mean, this is basic just self-control. And it's completely reasonable. It doesn't say how it's going to work or when it's going to work, but it does ask us to trust that the nature of God is good and the nature of God is just. He'll take care of it. Jesus goes on, verse 32, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. I like that Jesus walks in front. I Honestly, this is got to be one of the most torturous journeys that he makes. He knows where he's going. He's told the disciples what's going to happen, yet he takes the lead, and he shows them that you can move towards things that you know will be unpleasant in the name of the Lord. And Jesus just as a leader, doesn't expect them to take the lead on that. He steps out in front and goes right towards uh, what's going to be a a horrible experience, the cross. Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. And they followed, and as they followed, they were afraid. That's an interesting combination, to be both amazed by Jesus and to be afraid of what's to come. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them things that would happen to them. Behold, we're going, up to, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Mark's made this point now, this is the third time, that Jesus knew what was going to happen well before it happened. This time we get more detail. We see a courageous Jesus walking in front, we see well-positioned disciples walking behind. They're not, they're not stopping Jesus, and they're not falling behind Jesus. So amen, the disciples are learning. This is a lot better than the last two times Jesus talked about this. Jesus may have dreaded his fate, but he's not running from it. He's marching right into it, and they follow. They may have feared what would happen to them to be even be close to Jesus, but they're following Jesus nonetheless. And I guess for me, that resonates. I want to be following Jesus even if I know that I'm going to have to have some tougher conversations, even if I know I need to take a stand at work or or protect my family. Those are the kinds of decisions that are easy because of who I love and who I care about. And if I love the Lord, I'm going to march forward anyways. They were afraid. That's okay. That's human. They're not chastised for that. Instead, they get more time with Jesus as he teaches them things that should give them some encouragement. Mark has shown us uh, throughout the book of Mark, that the challenges with the Pharisees are, have grown. They're getting to be more and more direct. 
Um, and Jesus has told his disciples that to follow him, they have to pick up their cross. So that's a fearful idea. And maybe they're thinking as they're going up to Jerusalem is today the day I got to pick up a cross and be hanging alongside Jesus. That's a, something they don't know the answer to. How could it be possible to follow a Jesus that possibly could lead us to martyrdom or persecution or not being liked in the lunchroom? Why would we follow a faith like that? Why would we endure hardship for a religion that offers heaven and, and peace and rejoicing? And it seems like an odd combination. A human religion would say, we're going to offer you in peace and, and we're, we're going to tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear right now so you can feel good today. The, the, Jesus tells them you're going to actually have to struggle if you want to follow me. That that's a tough thing. That's a, that's a rare feature. If I can or can't endure the cross might be the question I ask myself. Am I ready to endure persecution for the sake of the Lord Jesus? Like, is that something I want to go through? So let's reframe the question a little bit because I think that's the wrong question. The question when it comes to persecution and endurance is often who's watching when I do this? What effect will this stand that I have to take have on my family, on the people around me, on the unsaved folks that are watching? And for the sake of the cross and for the name of Jesus Christ, will anyone get closer to Jesus because I'm going to stand by what the Word of God says? Will anyone learn or be discipled by that? And so they're going to condemn Jesus to death and he predicts in detail what's going to happen. I just resonate with the disciples a little bit. Do I have to go through this and how do I have to go through this? But again, I think that might be the wrong question. The question is, who do I love and how much do I love them? Because when you put this in another situation and I say, boy, you got to endure some things so that your kids can have a successful life, most parents would say, I can endure those things. Or if I could save my spouse some pain by going through something on her behalf, well, of course I would do that. Maybe the question is, who benefits from this? And who's blessed by what I'm, I'm going to do next? And so I think for Jesus, it says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He sees the other end of it, which is a relationship with his creation for all of eternity. And so for him, the cross is, you put the cross in light of eternity, it's only a couple days. It's not actually that bad of a thing. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. It's what he's asking his disciples to do. He says they're going to deliver him to the Gentile. That's an interesting prediction. Why would the, why would the Jewish people who are perfectly capable of stoning someone if they disagree with them, why would the Jews hand anybody over to the Romans? It gives Romans authority. So what kind of possible situation could occur for that to happen? But I think the more implausible a prophecy is, the more validity it has when it comes to be, that that was actually God telling them that that would happen. So Jesus is telling them, Psalm 119.22, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's the rejection itself that's going to be the cornerstone for the church. And so that's the path that's there and that they're going to kill him. So uh, that itself would sound pretty tragic. I think that he adds on in verse 34 that on the third day he's going to rise again to give us his believers understanding that that's going to happen. I don't think they fully understand it yet at this point, like how this is going to play out. But the idea here is that as they follow Jesus, he's assuring them this is worth it. And it's worth the trade. 
So you're, this cross that he's going to is where the sins are going to be forgiven. He's actually buying people out. So I look at that and, man, that's a gift. We don't have to be perfect, holy, or pure, but we do get to rise with Christ and enjoy the same resurrection that he's going to be re- having. We might even go to the grave with our flesh, but in our spirit, we're going to go be with Jesus. Well, that's science fiction until Jesus actually demonstrates how it works. So the transfiguration is a big deal that happened in the last chapter. That there is something to our existence that goes well beyond this physical place. So in light of eternity, the 80, 90 years I might spend on this planet, well, that's nothing. I'm going to live a lot longer with Christ. So we open the gift that Jesus asks us to give. That's what he's telling them to do. He declares that we're redeemed, we're cleaned, and we're welcomed into heaven. So we hear Jesus say, follow me, and we do it. We run after it, actually. We get rid of anything that gets in the way of that. So again, this is in light of the rich man's story. And he said, you got, a, you got an issue with possessions. you got to give them all up to follow me. And Jesus asked him to follow him, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't let those things go. Yet these disciples, they are following him, but they don't quite understand what it means to follow him. So that's two very different kinds of people. Notice uh, as we get to verse 35, they actually use the word then. Still connected. Still connected to the same story. That's the book of Mark. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> this is great. So they understand the point that Jesus is the Messiah, right? They don't use the phrase good teacher like we see in verse 17 because they understand who Jesus is. Um, but they do ask a very odd, different kind of question. What? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. I think this is interesting. You got the rich man that says, what can I do to get into heaven? And you got the disciples saying, what are you going to do for me? (laughs) These are both misunderstanding the relationship we have with our Messiah. Um, So that said, it's oddly worded question in in, uh, English. It's also an oddly worded question in the Greek. It's just a question that presumes that they're going to be served by the Messiah, that he's going to do something for them. And even as a friendly request, this is an odd thing to ask before you've told them what you want. So they're asking for something. They're, they're expecting that they'll get whatever they want if he says yes. And Jesus says to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Let's, before I answer your question, let's fill this out a little bit. So Jesus makes them make an actual request. So they do. Verse 37. They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to them, We're able. So this idea. First, let's get what they have right. They use the phrase, in your glory. They understand that what Jesus is doing on earth is temporary. They understand that the real heavenly kingdom is in the life to come. So when they use the phrase, in your glory, I think they're referencing the transfiguration, that he, he has a power and a form that's being concealed as he's in, in, in incarnate. And they've seen that, they realize that, this is part of why James and John are asking the question, because they saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah. 
showing that there is a life after death and there is a completely different kind of body that's there and presence that's there and they're talking about clearly talking about heaven and the kingdom of heaven uh, that's there so they want to sit the idea of sitting and sitting next to a ruler uh, in the first century had everything to do with position and rank so let's assume jesus is number one whoever gets the seat on the right hand is the acting agent for the ruler the one the hand is what they're called, and they go out and do things, and they get things done. They, they exert the power of the leader. Left hand would likely be the person's best friend or, or chief advisor. They speak in the ear of the ruler. So back in chapter 9, they were debating this, verse 34. They're still debating who's going to be the greatest. Last time he told the disciples, if you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. He's going to tell them the exact same thing. So why tell the story twice? And I think that's because in this light, this request is being, is being told in light of the rich man. People want to know how to get to heaven, and you've got basically three approaches to that. And the first approach, the, the rich man, is what do I have to do? What can, I, what can I physically, mentally, spiritually accomplish before I die so that I can assure my own way into heaven? Works-based theology. If only I do enough works, I'll get in. That's Judaism. That's Buddhism. That's Islam that I have to do and accomplish things during this life in order to get into a heavenly kingdom or, or to get rewarded by my God on the other end. So workspace doesn't work. The disciples are a slightly different one. They come to God saying, what are you going to do for me? It's very, it's very temporal. And even though they've projected it into the next life in the glory of God, they're still looking at their faith as something that is going to reward them. So I'm going to accept Jesus because I want the rewards of heaven. Well, that's not a... Obviously, disciples are followers of Jesus. They don't necessarily get rebuked for this, but they do get redirected and they get a lesson. Because he says you don't know what you ask. That if you really want position in the kingdom of heaven, you have... To, there, are, there are positions in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't deny that there's ranking and position. But he's understanding with the drinking of the cup and the baptism that you will... To get that position of respect of other believers, you need to go through things that other believers are at, have ad admiration for. Respect and position in the kingdom of heaven is earned, and it's earned perfectly. It's earned justly. I got to tell you, there's some believers, they've been walking with the Lord for years. They know the word of God backwards and forwards. Seems like everybody they come in touch with gets a step closer to following the king. They're discipling people. They're training people. They serve in every kind of ministry that's needed, I admire those people. That Because the cup they drink is one of self-sacrifice. I look at what they've done. They've been baptized. They've been overwhelmed by the work of God. The word baptism here, literally in the Greek, means to overwhelm or submerge. So we know Jesus was baptized at, at the you know in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense. He was baptized with John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry. But here he says... And, the baptism, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He, the idea that Jesus is overwhelmed in his ministry, that there's a lot to do, is a concept we don't often talk about, but he's basically saying, are you willing to serve the Lord to the point of being absolutely out of your depth? Where you have to trust in the Lord at every step and every day. That you don't know where your next food's going to come from, but you're trusting in the Lord that the ministry you're working on, for the name of Jesus, that he's going to take care of his own. 
Psalm 69.2 says, I sink in the deep mire where there is no standing. I come into deep waters where the floods overflow me or baptize me. Sometimes when we talk about baptism, we talk about the baptism of water, which is a, an image of the Holy Spirit and dying to ourselves, being raised in a new life in Christ. But there's also the idea of being baptized in the deep waters, right? So spiritually speaking, like David wrote this because he was totally overwhelmed. He had no idea how to get through the next day. And he gave it to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm absolutely overwhelmed and I need you to get me through it. And so he learned how to pray for strength because of the trials he was going through, that kind of baptism. It's interesting as believers that the closer we get to the Lord, the more the Lord can use us in situations. And often to be used for the Lord in this world means that this world isn't happy with you. So this kind of danger, death, certainty of failure, that's our path. That's where we're headed. We let the Lord lead, and we trust that he knows the way through. We don't swim, but we do fall backwards. We don't stand, but we do kneel. And so there's different ways to live life, and Jesus has been desperately trying to teach that as we go through. He says to them, they said to them, we are able. He just reminded them of death, and they say, we're boldly willing to do it. Why? Because they love Jesus. They're happy to make the trade. We'll go with you to the end. I think this is something that's amazing with brothers in Christ, like that bond, and I'm sure sisters have this too, is like, I'm with you to the end. If we're going to go into battle, I'm, I'm on your side. I got your back. And I think that's the sentiment in verse 39 that they're saying is, Jesus, we're with you to the end. We won't let you go. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink of the cup that I drink, and with the baptism that I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. You two are both going to suffer. And in fact, the, 12, the disciples, not the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples, actually do get places of honor in the kingdom. If you read the book of Revelation, the, the disciples actually are elevated and they, they have high positions. Part of that is the suffering they went through for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm going to suffer through this horrible job that I don't like. Um, suffering through the things of this world is just suffering. That's not the same thing as having an experience because of your commitment to the ways of the Lord. They're very different. Um, so don't uh, just go to work on Monday and think, well, I'm, I'm suffering through this. Um, unless you want to put the Lord in front, that's just suffering. It's not necessarily suffering for the Lord, which is what we're talking about here. So, And the, the suffering that James and John go through, interestingly, James is going to be the first one martyred, Acts chapter 12. He's going to be the first one that's killed for faith in Jesus. So indeed, he's going to drink that cup. John doesn't actually end up being martyred. He's the only one of the disciples that lives till a ripe old age. However, church tradition says he was, they tried to boil him in oil and he was somehow miraculously protected from that and he survived it. So he lived to a grand old age, but he also was exiled to an island uh, and watched all of his friends be killed and martyred. Every single one died for their faith. Verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared. So it's not that Jesus doesn't have the actual authority to assign those positions. I don't think that's what's being said here. Notably because at the end of 40 it says, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. So the idea is that those two spots are already taken. And in that they've been assigned, they're not. Jesus says they're not mine to give. 
or he's actually respecting a difference between his incarnated self, Jesus, and his actual fatherly self, Yahweh, God. And that that's a God kind of decision and not a, a, a son of man decision. And that would be consistent with how Jesus has talked uh, through, through, the, through the Gospels. But I think in essence here, the, the idea is that those people that are referenced in verse 40 have already been picked. And so those two positions are special and unique in a certain kind of way. So when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Obviously frustrated. They've been arguing about this for a, a while in the ministry. And James and John just keep pushing about being the top, being the best. Likely because they thought this was an honor for James and John. But Jesus continues to teach. And he calls them all next in verse 42. So he's not just talking to James and John. He's talking to the whole crowd at this point. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? There's a way this world does authority. And authority is if I have enough money or control, I can tell you what to do. That's authority. But that's not the kind of authority Jesus is teaching his disciples. For the Romans, this was true too, and even the Jews. Power was about dominance strength, and the ability to force other people or control other people in action. This isn't what Jesus was looking for. And they don't understand the nature of the relationship that the church is going to have. Authority is not exercised over people. It's exercised under people. Listen to verse 43. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first shall not be shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, not everybody wants position. Not everybody wants to be great. But for those who do, for those who want to be great in the kingdom of God, ask this question. How many people do you serve? That's the only question that really has anything to do with rank and title in the kingdom of God. If you want favor or advancement, and frankly, it's like I, we have an awesome church. I love you guys. The connection of us in this room, the people that we respect and regard are the people that serve and, and, and serve in self-sacrifice on a daily basis. Those are the people we, we look to and say, I, I have a high regard for them. Those are the people we go to for advice. We get new believers coming in and they're just working out their faith and they're growing and they're figuring things out. They're looking up to mature believers, not because those mature believers have dominance, not because they've been hired for a job as new believer, but because those veteran believers have, are, have a willingness to serve the folks that need help. That's how you gain credibility in the kingdom. We're already saved. We're already in, inheriting eternal life. That's done. That work is done the first day you decide to follow Jesus. It's over. But at this point, it is about pleasing the God because we love him, pleasing God because we want to honor him. And I think it's a good question. What must I do, but not to be saved? What must I do to please my Lord? How can I serve? So we love the Lord I think it's a good and a pure thing to say, what can we do for the Lord? But not in thinking that we're going to earn points. Thinking instead that we can actually help other people earn things. We can help other people get closer to the Lord. 
So there's an action that comes here, not to earn our salvation, but because there are rewards in the life beyond that are worthy of pursuing. So first note this, in verse 40 it says, whoever desires, and I think that's an important point. Some people do not desire to be in a charge and to be in command. And you know what? That's wonderful. That's a blessed, sweet spirit that's humble and doesn't pursue after these things. So in this sense, the what can we do? It's like, you know what? I'm just here to be blessed. I, I'm, you know, frankly, sometimes people come to Bible study and they're kind of broken. And we don't ask anything of them. They don't need to do anything, give anything, help with anything, coordinate anything, clean up after anybody. We just say, come and be blessed. And in fact, come and be blessed as long as you need to where you actually want to be blessing other people. And that's the kingdom of God. So whoever desires, basically, I would say that that narrows the field. Not everyone comes to church on a Sunday desiring to participate and help with the ministry. But they're coming because they want to faithfully be letting the word of God take root in their heart. And they're going to be here, dang it, because they've committed to being here. And God says to not forsake the assembly of the saints, to maintain the Sabbath. That therefore we do. It's really simple. So some people find peace when they become a believer. They do not find further ambition. So lording over people would ask these kinds of questions. I come into the church and I say, I'm a believer today. I wake up in the morning and I say, how can I make my day better? What can I do to gain more material wealth? How can I succeed in life? How can I grow? I might watch a, a Christian series on how to be more effective at work. So I might gain satisfaction. I might gain peace. I might get better at things. I might help out once in a while here and there. But the question of a lording over person is, what do I have to do to be saved? Or even worse, what the disciples asked, what are you going to do for me? Will you do anything I ask of you? Well, that's a question that someone asks when they think of that, the world's version of authority and, and, and dominance. Instead, I think Jesus is teaching us to ask very different questions. And frankly, I don't think there's anything wrong with self-help and how do I get better at these and whatever, but they're not the questions of the kingdom. They're definitely the questions of somebody who's focused on me. How do I? What can I? How much can I? It's all I questions. And Jesus asks us to give our lives up. Our life doesn't matter as much as service does. So listen to this. This is important. Here's the questions that Jesus would rather have us ask. Instead of how can I make my day better, we say how can I make someone else's day better? How can I help someone else to succeed and achieve and get that promotion at work? How can I help someone else to find peace, to get their, their bliss today? How can I help someone else to feel blessed? How can I help someone else get, even with material support, to make their lives better? What must I do to help others get saved? What and how can I bring people to Jesus? How can I raise the reputation of Jesus to where other people want to serve him too, and other people can experience the blessing that I've felt. Here's the punchline. Go back up to the start of the story. The answer to this question is how do you do this is actually what Jesus says at the very beginning. I love this. He gave them the answer to start with. Verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He modeled for them how to ask that question. They're coming with a preposterous thing and he just says, what do you want me to do for you? 
If you want, if you have the ambition to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you should be asking that question as much and as regularly as Jesus did. What do you want me to do for you? How can I help? What can I do to make your life better? Many people accept the truth of Jesus Christ, but they forget to ask that question. In that sense, they forget to follow the, the, the way of life that Jesus modeled for us. Now, I don't know if that puts them in trouble when it comes to their eternal salvation, but this is in context of the rich man saying, How, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus is teaching and training. We forget to ask, what do you want? How can I give? How can I help? Lord, I'm, I'm here, Lord. Send me. What can I do? And we see that the men and women of God throughout the Bible that do that are the people God smiles upon. Now, if you love your Lord, you appreciate your freedom from chains, you say, well, I'm going to do as much of that as I can because I owe God everything. I owe everything to my Lord, so I'll do everything I can to help the people he loves. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. That's also in the book of Matthew. This is something that stood out in the disciples' minds. Clearly the Messiah is first in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody disputes that. But if even the first in the kingdom of heaven becomes a servant to the point of giving up his life, He's actually asking that of his disciples. There's no way around of it. That's exactly what he's telling them. If you're going to give me your life, that's all the way till you die. And the Lord will use it. So if it's good enough for Jesus, and I think that's the point here, it should be good enough for me and you. So instead of focusing on me, I have to focus on you. What can I do to bless you? Psychologically, this is the magic sauce. Most depression and anxiety is because we look at ourselves too much. Most self-esteem issues are because we're looking at ourselves in comparison to others. Most anger and anxiety because we're looking at the world too much. We're seeing the evil that's out there. Stop it. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and look at the children that he has all over your life and figure out how to serve them. Serve people in the body, serve people outside the body. Give your life as a sacrifice for those people that he's put into your life. And he's put people in every one of our lives. Every one of us have people in our life that could use that kind of love in their life. And that's what he's actually asking us to do, to serve. And it's a very general use of the word serve. It's not a specific, you know, make sure you pack people meal boxes. It's not that specific. It's to serve in general. He leaves it to us to figure out how to do that. Maybe the possessions for the rich man, it wasn't the possessions that were the problem. It's that, it's that the possessions made him too busy to serve. He didn't have time to do anything. It's amazing. People say, oh, I just, I want to be blessed. I love doing these things, but I just don't have time to be there. And it's like, well, okay. Then you're choosing the thing that curses you with busyness over the blessing and the peace of the fellowship of the saints. You're making a choice. Well, I really don't have a choice. I have to do this. Who said you have to do this? And that's the thing where Jesus says, I recognize when you're giving up the have-tos that other people have made a have-to for you. He sees when that happens and what you do. And again, each person has to kind of seek this out uh, with, with a soft conscience before the Lord. What do you want me to do to, to run towards you? 
What's, what's tripping me up so that I can't serve and can't do the things of the kingdom of God, that I keep having to miss things? The word ransom here in verse 45 is in the Greek, it's, it's lutron. I think this is great. Jesus actually works in an image here, but it's a, it's a poignant image, and it, and it speaks to the theology that we have. A lutron is a price paid for a slave. If you bought another human being to serve you, you would pay a lutron. And so he uses this idea, and, and in verse 45, he uses the word slave, and in verse 45, he uses the correct word lutron, ransom, to buy that slave. So if the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a lutron for many, he's lowering himself to the price that's paid so that slaves can be freed. Ransoms are always paid because the slave can't pay it themselves. Someone else has to pay that lutron because the, lut the slave has no, no value. That's why they're a slave. So Jesus claims to be our price to buy our lives, giving our lives so much more value than they had before. He ransoms us with his life, equating the value of our life in his eyes. He loves us so much that he would incarnate himself on earth and then give his life so that we could be free. Free from what? Free from sin and death. Free from ourselves. Free from the me, 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 I, I, I stuff. Freed. Freed from the obligations this world wants to put on us. So, yeah, I think, I, I just think if, as a, you know, to put this into a, not a parable, but an image or a story, I think of sitting in a jail cell, the deepest, darkest, nastiest Roman jail cell you can think of, chained to the wall, chained to the floor. You can't move. The jailer comes tromping down, opens up the cage, comes in and starts to unlock the chains on my wrists and on my feet and says, well, you're free. Somebody paid your ransom. And I think the, the prisoner you know, could react to that in a variety of ways. One way is to say, well, what do I have to do to earn this? Verse, verse 18 in our chapter. And the jailer just says, well, nothing. You, you hearing me okay? It's already done. The price has already been paid. You can't do anything to earn it. And he keeps unlocking the chains. The prisoner just says, well, this is the, a weird turn of phrase. You're, you know, well, uh, well, can I sit on his right hand or left hand? Like, do I get promotion? Which the jailer would then say, well, I'm thinking you owe this guy your life. Maybe talking about promotions isn't the first thing you should be talking about with him. You know, maybe just start with thank you and, you know, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Like, that, that would be a good question to ask someone who just paid for your freedom, ransomed you, Lutron. The prisoner would just say, like, well, where can I find the guy? Well, here's the fancy thing. The guy didn't pay with money. He's actually trading your place for his. So he's coming down the stairs right now. He's taking your place. So <laughs> you sure you want the right-hand position anymore? Because you'll just stay in the cell if that's what you're asking for. So here he is. You can give him your chains. Prisoner says to the guy, well, thank you. Thank you for paying for my redemption. I, I don't know what I can do. Uh, is there, can I do anything to earn it? Or do you need anything in return? And the, the Savior says, well, no, it's a done deal. I came to serve. Starts putting the chains on his arms and prisoners just kind of doesn't know what to do with saying, well, well, how do I repay you? And the Savior says, well, you can't. But you know what? Anything you can do to serve other people, you, you're going to do it for me. 
I love each of the other people in this prison just like I love you. So if you love them, can you serve them? I'd appreciate that. You know, maybe tell them that I'm going to come and take their chains too. Remind them that they're redeemed and that I'm coming back. So the prisoner says, well, dang, that's pretty good news. And the Savior says, well, that's a nice term. Let's use that. <laughs> this is the good news. It's so hard to understand, but so simple at the same time. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's already been done. God's already done it. Why did he do it? Because of the joy of the Lord. He did it because he wanted to spend eternity with his creation and doesn't want to waste time with people who don't want to be with him. So he's looking for people that want to seek after him. People that actually appreciate getting the chains taken off. I think this is why sometimes it's easier for messed up people to be on fire for Christ. They realize that they, they, they had a little longer in the jail cell. And what a blessing it is for people that never have to see the jail cell because the redemption happens at a young age. For even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another example is coming up right after this. Jesus talks about it and he's going to go show them what it looks like. This third person doesn't ask, what do I have to do to be saved? And he definitely doesn't say, what are you going to do for me? He, he, he asks a very different question. And, and I love how this is connected in. Now, verse 46, now they came to Jericho. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. And he and he's, went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, this is great, it's not really a name at all. Bartimaeus is the Aramaic for son of Timaeus. So Mark as an author is translating the Aramaic for the Roman reader. So he says Bartimaeus, Aramaic, and then he says the son of Timaeus in the Greek. So he's translating it to make a point. Nobody knew this guy's name. They just knew he was the son of Timaeus. So this is the only mention of Bartimaeus in the Bible. It's the only place it's brought up. I think this, is, this really stood out to Peter because it made a huge point. He's by the road begging, and he doesn't even have a name. He's some no-name guy. So if you want to think about who's first and last in the kingdom of heaven, if you're looking for a last-place character, let's look at Bartimaeus. Let's look at no-name guy. And we can just say he's Mr. No-Name. Sitting by the side of the road is not a good thing in the first century. It's a kind of jail cell. You're starving. You're at the mercy of the people around you, the sun, the rain, the elements, the heat of the day, the chill of the night, brutal lifestyle. And to be blind and not even know where you are all the time, in context, not know who's walking up to you, this is torturous. But in verse 47, it says, and when he heard, somebody got out of their jail cell and cheerfully shared with Bartimaeus that Jesus was coming and who he was and what he was capable of. Somebody told this guy that Jesus could have mercy on him. But it was his heart that chose to cry out for it. That's the good news. All that person had to do is give this guy hope. That if you run to Jesus, he can help you. So he says, Jesus, son of David. <laughs> he understands the deep theological idea of who Jesus is. He names him son of David is to call him the king of Israel. He's the promised Messiah that would come out of uh, the line of David 
So to say Jesus, son of David, and then ask for mercy is to ascribe to Jesus a correct understanding of who he was as Messiah. And we don't see any evidence that he ever went to seminary to figure this out. It's really easy. It says, have mercy on me. This is the massive complex prayer of salvation. Knowing who Jesus is, when you ask for mercy, you're clearly believing that you need it, which is to admit your sin and confess it. And Mr. No Name here figures out the right thing to say to someone who can give them eternal life. The right thing to say is, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He proclaims it. He asks God to save him. Pretty basic, even from a no-name guy on the side of the road. He understands everything he needs to understand. He also asks for mercy, not for healing. That's interesting. And you could argue, well, asking for mercy is asking for healing. Sure it is. But mercy is a much broader term. It has not only to do with the physical, but it has to do with the spiritual. That mercy requires someone to not administer the punishment that's due deserved. So by asking for mercy, there's a strong understanding that he deserves some things. Spiritually speaking, he's maybe being punished. By asking for mercy, he doesn't assume position. He's not asking for a spot to the right or the left. He's not asking to buy his way into heaven. He's just asking for mercy. I think of the woman who said, even the dog gets the scraps at the table now and then. Jesus admired both of these people. It's the opposite of good teacher, what shall I do to be saved? Verse 17, it's just, have mercy on me, son of David, king, have mercy on me. It's even further from the, well, we've done pretty good. Can we be at your right hand from the disciples? Just that assumption of position. Verse 37, have mercy is... I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to trade, but I do have hope. I hope that what I've been told about you is true. Lord, can you save me? Verse 48 says, many wanted him to be quiet. Well, that's blunt. You know, this outcast is screaming and yelling and their response is quiet down, shut up. You're making too much noise. It says actually the word many there. Many people told him to shut up. So he was loud and persistent. <laughs> and he just keeps going. You know, this is a, Bartimaeus is a great image of prayer. If you want something from the Lord that's for the sake of the kingdom, ask for it. Ask for it loudly. Ask for it repeatedly. Ask for it to the point where people get a little sick of you asking for it. Don't, don't be the one that shushes somebody that prays those kinds of prayers. Be the one that prays with them. Be the one that helps them out. So, they're, the disciples are likely involved in trying to shush this guy up. I bet they felt about two inches tall when they saw how Jesus reacted. He cried out all the more is how Bartimaeus reacted. Not a hint of caring what other people think about him. Just none of that. This guy's crying out for his life. Nothing short will do. He can't do anything other than cry out. It's a great example of prayer. He cries out because he knows Jesus can help. That's called faith. He cries out loudly and fervently and resoundingly and repeatingly. That's called persistence. And he cries out out loud where other people can hear him crying out. That's humility. Those that are in last place, they can't get ahead on their own. Jason Taylor. It doesn't work like that. There's nothing that they can do but cry out. 
you know you need Jesus, never stop crying out. Never stop making that effort. Never quit. Jesus likely is walking by and he hears this and he lets it play out for a bit. I think Jesus probably waited until his ambitious disciples started shushing the guy and then Jesus stood still. Verse 49, he just stops walking and commanded him to be called. So this is authority being exercised in the kingdom. It's not that the kingdom doesn't have authority. The word commanded there, I think, is very intention. Jesus makes a command, commands him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. So now they're nice to him. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. This guy doesn't even need to be told to cast off whatever he has. Verse 21. Rich man was told to get rid of the possessions. This guy just does it. He has next to nothing, but he throws aside his garment, verse 50, because it might trip him up. Remember, he's blind. That garment could get in the way. It could, whatever. It doesn't say he ever went back for it. It doesn't say he left it behind because it's just not important as to getting to Jesus. By the way, I should point this out. This is not a passage that says garments are evil. So this is not an argument for nudist church. And you'd say, well, I've never heard that before. But go back and look at the rich man parable. How many times have you heard that giving everything away is what Jesus wants? But that's to say that this is an argument against clothing is as much an, the same argument as saying that the rich man story was about owning things. It, it's not about that. It's about getting, this is called bad exegesis. Both of these stories are about getting the things that will trip you up in following Jesus out the heck out of your life. And the, the rich man can't do it with many things, but the poor man can do it with only one garment. Who's giving the greater gift? Which one does God smile upon? Let's not miss here that Bartimaeus has likely, as a beggar, has nothing. And yet he just leaves behind the things that, when, when there's an opportunity to come to Jesus, he just runs to him. He doesn't leave sorrowful or like he missed an opportunity because he's not going to miss the opportunity. Friends, if there's something in your life getting in the way of following Jesus, don't just be sorrowful. Throw it to the ground and walk away as fast as you can. Just give it up. There's nothing better than following Jesus. There's no greater gift to open. There's nothing that you could possibly have on this earth that's worth the trade that God's offering you. So leave it behind. It's the opposite of the rich man who threw himself at Jesus' feet. Opposite of the disciples who Jesus found arguing, this man rose and came to Jesus. That's just nothing left for me in that old life. He naturally does what Jesus tells the rich man to do. He told the rich man to follow him, verse 22. This guy just naturally does it. The disciples are trying to brag about, in verse 27, that they will follow Jesus. The rich man comes to Jesus and, and says that, that he can't follow Jesus. This guy just follows Jesus. It's really simple. This is salvation. This is eternal life. The rich man comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do? Verse 17. The disciples come to Jesus saying, we want whatever we ask. Verse 35. What are you going to do for us? 
They assume Jesus is at their service. It's amazing. This guy just comes to Jesus. There's no demands. There's no record of an assumption. He's not presuming position in the kingdom. He's, I think, thankful for having the chains taken off. And he hasn't even been healed yet. But he comes, he rose, and he came to Jesus as a blind man. He's moving forward. Now, I'm thinking at this point, because Jesus called him over, how does a blind man get from over there to over here and not bump into things? I think the disciples have to take on a new role. They, A, have to move out of the way. That means they need to move themselves out of the way of this least of these. I think they also maybe kicked some stones out of the road to make sure there were no stumbling blocks for this guy. And I'm sure they didn't worry about how that guy looked or how he smelled or how he talked. In fact, they didn't like how he talked. They told him to be quiet. <laughs> but this guy comes to Jesus. I think at this point the disciples start to serve by making that path as easy and open as possible. There's no record here that he tripped or he had to push people out of the way. People just cleared a path. Church, if we could do that for every lost soul, just clear a path, you're doing all the service Jesus has ever asked you to do. Get yourself out of the way so you're not blocking people from coming into the kingdom. Open the invitation. Give people hope in Jesus Christ and then say things like, be of good cheer, he's calling you. If we're even in this conversation about church, God's calling you to come to church with me. I know it. And I, let me get out of the way. If I'm the one that doesn't, like, I, you know, I can not come for a Sunday so you can get there if you don't like me. But come to church. Come to hear God's words. Let them take root in your heart. He listens. He waits. He stands before the king, the son of David, and he says, and the question's still hanging out there, have mercy on me. Let me give you one more comparison. The rich man is told what to sell, and he has many things. No-name guy throws off the only thing that he has, and he's not told to throw it off. Between the rich man, the disciples, and this no-name, who is Mark admiring as he writes? Which one of these three is supposed to stand out to us? Again, Mark's recording some of Peter's sermons. If you hear this as a sermon, it should be hitting home about now. Wow, I had it all wrong. I can't earn my way into heaven. I don't, I'm not going to heaven because I can get stuff. Maybe I just need to say thank you. What can I do for you? Notice the request here is not mentioned. It's not repeated. He rose and came to Jesus. So we just have him standing there at the end of verse 50. The initial prayer, have mercy, is still out there. It's unstated that there was any request here. Probably just a moment of silence. Like I just, how many times do we pray and just we come before God just in silence? Lord, I'm, I'm just here. You called and I came. Standing before Jesus, I remind myself too that spiritually I'm blind. I was blind. We we're all there at one point. We we're all hoping for another path in life. And praise God, we've found it. Don't hoard that blessing. Put it on a hill and shine that light. So there he is. My problem's the same as his problem. Spiritually speaking, I need mercy. Verse 51, Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Think about that. Jesus has a purpose in what he's doing. I think from verse 36 to verse 51, I think he uses the exact same tone and inflection that he used with his disciples. Hey, remember how I started that conversation with you back then? What do you want me to do for you? 
He expresses a heart of service. Jesus puts himself. Remember, James and John wanted to know, will you do whatever we ask? Jesus actually puts himself in that position with Bartimaeus. Mr. No Name, what do you want me to do for you? I'm at your service. Wow, this is greatness. In the kingdom of God, boy, if you have eyes to see, this is greatness. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Put yourself to, at the service of the person that in your eyes is maybe the least. What can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Instead of presuming Jesus is at our service, he's just offering it to Bartimaeus because he doesn't presume it. The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might receive sight. I want my sight. It's obvious what he wants. Jesus knew what he wanted, but he makes him say it out loud, another great image of prayer. You want something for the Lord, don't just expect him to read your mind, even though he can. He wants you to say it so that you know who the gift is from. Rabboni means master teacher, but there's an expression of a humble submission here. If you have a rabbi, you serve that rabbi. So the service is going both ways. The prayer, his prayer goes from having mercy and now it's a specific request for sight. There's no trace of arrogance here like the disciples. There's no trace of self-declared righteousness like the rich man. There's just humility and gratefulness. And then Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus on the road. Jesus said he loved the rich man. Jesus taught the disciples and lived life with them for three years. And with no name, he just heals him and gives him his freedom. Go your way. That's interesting. With the rich man, he said, follow me. With the disciples, he said, follow me. With this guy, he never asks for that. He says, go your way. Very different thing. I think he's showing the disciples here that it, the kingdom of God is not about having dominion over people or commanding people. There's no record of anything here but the word of Jesus. He only speaks this. In, mo in a lot of the miracles, he does something. He'll spit in their ears or give them a wet willy or you know, the, a robe gets touched. And a lot of the, the miracles of Mark, there's something that happens. Here there's nothing. It's just God's word. Your faith has made you well. The, the, the hearing of the word is all that happens. We've seen lots of healings, but at this point, we see the service that's going on here. Jesus is not the greatest ruler as Rome sees it. He's the greatest servant as God sees it. And we need to see it that way too. Why can't I be in charge? Why can't I be on the stage? Why can't I do this? You can, everyone in this room can look around this room and see 20, 30 different opportunities to serve. If you want to serve, don't let me stop you. Serve. Look around the room and start to bless people by making their life better. I think a great question is, what do you want me to do for you? What can I help you with? Sincerely. Look at this guy's faith. Jesus says your faith made you well. His faith made him cry out. He named Jesus as king. He asked for mercy, which means he accepts his sin. He, he accepted that Jesus is his teacher in Rabboni. He humbly asks for sight to see, and Jesus grants it there. He doesn't have to do anything but go his way. No debt. But look at what he does. Don't miss that last thing. He followed Jesus on the road. He just became a disciple. How did he do that? How did he promote himself from beggar on the side of the road to disciple? 
He simply followed Jesus. He became a servant. And, and he gets a promotion. It says, and immediately, so one could say this is in the blink of an eye, the guy's transformed. And he follows Jesus. This is very interesting how this happens. Jesus gains a follower here not by commanding anybody or asking anybody to follow him. It's amazing. He just got a greater counter for the number of disciples that he has. And how did he do that? He did it by serving the least of these. Wow. Amen to that. Like, this is great. If you want to know where you rank, if, if you're one of the types of people that wants promotion and advancement in the kingdom of God, how many people are you serving? How many people think of you as somebody that's made their life better? Or is everybody just serving you all day? You're free to go. But this guy's thankful to serve. He, Jesus says, go your way. This man chooses to follow Jesus. I just want to sit on that point. If Jesus is passing you by today, don't miss the opportunity to cry out, beg for mercy, and follow Jesus. That just Don't miss it. Don't leave here today. Do this business now. Why? If you're hearing about it right now and it's on your mind right now, there's no better time to choose to follow Jesus with your life. I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home. I don't care if you've never even heard the gospel before. If there's enough of your heart that says Jesus is the Messiah and, he's the, and you have hope that he can help you and save you, then you believe that he has that power to do it. Then you choose to follow him and you cry out for mercy. It's easy to pray. You just speak and, and the Lord hears you. I think Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that because he was thankful for the help, the healing, and the love of Christ, he was willing to serve. We don't do things to gain salvation. We do things because we love the salvation we've been given. It's very, very, very different. And Jesus served and showed mercy to the least of these. That's basic. With no strings, no, lever no leverage, no trade thing. Jesus doesn't ask him to donate to the Jesus Fund. Jesus doesn't ask him to, you know, run up to the front of the room. He doesn't ask anything of this guy. He just says, come to me. And he does it. Public confession of faith. And this guy physically then starts to follow Jesus. We don't ever hear his name again. But it says here that he followed Jesus. He's just quietly there as a no-name for the rest of the gospel. Jesus served and showed mercy. His disciples shushed the guy, and then Jesus elevated the guy. He doesn't win a follower by putting no name down or telling him to be quiet. He wins a follower by helping him up and telling him what to say and helping, to, helping him to do it. When a great man in the kingdom of God serves a lesser man, it simply elevates the lesser man. That's called merciful. It's called grace. When a lesser man serves a greater man, it's amplifying the message that that greater man has. So when Bartimaeus follows Jesus, it just adds to, it facilitates and amplifies the reputation of Jesus. In the sole act of following Christ with your life, you're actually giving glory to Jesus' name because you're one more follower that sees the benefit of your Savior because he's healed you. So you don't have to do anything, but it adds meaning to the greater person. Either way, service from a great person in the kingdom or a lesser person in the kingdom, service lifts everybody up. It promotes everyone. Even no name now is a better example of faith than the disciples. That's a good promotion that he got simply for crying out for mercy. 
If you want respect, you want people to think you're amazing, you want to be liked in the kingdom of God amongst the people of the church, you don't do it by coming in and puffing yourself up and telling us how much you know. You don't do it by putting other people down or critiquing or gossiping. If you want to build yourself up in the kingdom of God, you have to serve people. Verse 43, we'll finish the chapter. Yet it shall not be among so, so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever you desire to be the first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Trying to Try serving others. If you want to elevate, you want to do things, if you appreciate the grace you've been given, try taking and doing exactly what Jesus asked you to do. Serve other people. Find a way. Try helping out more. Hey, when we get done here today, there's going to be cleanup work to do. I wonder if all 20 of us helped out with cleanup on a day after we've done church, how quickly that would get done and what a blessing that would be to the people who usually do most of it. Child care, like, wouldn't it be cool if we had people fighting for turns in childcare? What would that say to the kids about how important they are in, in the work of the church? There's so many ways to serve. So many things that can be done. There's somebody in this room that needs an encouraging word, needs to hear something that you think about them that's positive. Go say it. Go tell them what you think. With the godly, I think people that do those things, boy, your stock goes up. People notice. We notice, don't we? Look around. We notice when people are doing things that are kind and graceful and good. And you do gain reputation in the kingdom of God for doing that, if that's what you wish. But start, if you're not following Jesus, start there. Start by following the king. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gift of mercy that you've given to me and everyone here. Lord, I thank you for the way in which you bless us, the things that you do to call us and ask us what you can do for us. And Lord, it's, I don't know, in my life, it's kind of been a, a one-way relationship. You do everything for me and I do so little for you. Lord, help me to, out of love, do as much as I can, not out of obligation, not grudgingly, not in some sense of like, I'm gonna earn my way into your favor, but Lord, I, I already have your favor. I don't need to earn it. Lord, help me be a blessing. Help other people to experience the grace and love that, that you showed to me and, and the way in which you showed it to me through other people at times. Lord, help that to just happen across our body. May we be known as the people who love one another. May that be our reputation. May it elevate and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.